And we are going to be spending our time today on the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And as I've said before, but again, some of you may be new, what we try to do is go through the material that the church encourages us. And so theoretically, um, everybody in the church right now is teaching 1 Thessalonians 3. I say theoretically because some have a lot more difficulty getting to the punchline each week and some of them run behind. But that is certainly the case. And so we will do that. Last week, we were in the last part of 1 Thessalonians 2. We talked about Satan as an adversary, because that was the argument being made there. Today, we're going to see Satan as the tempter. So at the end, if we have enough time, looks like we are going to have that. I want to talk about seven principles of temptation and seven stages of temptation so that we can learn a little bit more about that as well. So again, we're kind of doing a little bit about Satan. By the way, if you're a visitor here, okay, this is not the church of Flip Wilson. We don't always talk about Satan, but we did thought today uh, over these last two weeks it would be appropriate, one, because the text brings us to those topics. Number two, I've mentioned before that if you look at surveys, and we have just finished a very huge survey at Probe Ministries. I'm going to do three different interviews this week just on the survey alone. Um, we have found that the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe that Satan's a real person. And my argument has always been, how can you be effective in terms of spiritual warfare if you don't even know that you're in a battle? So that's why last week we talked about Satan as your adversary. Today we're going to talk about Satan and the world in terms of temptation. Everybody with me? So that's kind of what we're going to do. Well, let's, if we can, look at the first section. We break it down very easily into three parts. Part number one is the first five verses in chapter three. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow here the tempter there it's talking about Satan referred to Satan as the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. A couple of puzzling statements here by the Apostle Paul. So I'll spend a little more time in this first section. But first of all, let's give some of the background. Why did Paul write the letter? He has been in Thessalonica. He now finds himself in Athens and now Corinth. And as a result, he decides to send Timothy back to check on what has happened in a church that he planted. But it was only there for three Sabbaths, basically three weeks. And he had communicated to them up until now the fact that he had this great care for them and concern for them like a nursing mother, also like a father. And so as a result, he's wanting to get the report back and now he's of course received that he also says that he in the last chapter we look at last week if you happen to be with us how he wanted to come back to Thessalonica and felt thwarted by Satan this is the aspect of Satan as an adversary we talked about that last week if you weren't here or you're new to the class you can go and find that because I tried to take some time just to focus on the fact that here he says when I could or when we could no longer stand it he couldn't bear because he was was worried about a church 
which he had planted but had to leave very quickly. This is very different than the church like Ephesus where he spends an incredible amount of time building into those individuals. But you can imagine right now we have what's called the Prestonwood Network. And you can imagine that if we wanted to establish a church, we have, for example, in Boston or we have in Seattle, that you go, you meet with them three weeks and then you're gone, you'd want to say, Aren't you glad we have Zoom? Aren't you glad we have email? Because you would say, I haven't really been able to pour enough time into these individuals. And yet here you can see why he was concerned. And so he trusted God uh, to be with the Thessalonians and give them strength. Um, But he also is kind of like this parent who's separated from his children and really wanting to know what they're going through, knowing full well that they were going through affliction. We see, of course, that he says he tried numerous times to go to Thessalonica. Um, Even today, Pastor Graham was talking about we really don't know what Paul's uh, particular thorn in the flesh was. We also don't know exactly what it was that kept him from being able to go back to Thessalonica. But he believed that by sending Timothy, that would work. Why? Well, it turns out that Paul and Sylvanius were both full Jews. And if you're Jewish in that culture and you walk into a Gentile city, pretty obvious what you are. And so you get marked real easily. But Timothy was at least half Greek. So the possibility, and this is why we think that he sent him back, is Timothy could come into Thessalonica. It was a Gentile city. He was part Greek. He'd fit in pretty well. No difficulty there at all. Whereas Paul and Savinius would have drawn attention to themselves almost instantaneously. Remember, if you read in the book of Acts, it talks about how they were dragged before the magistrates. They were attacked. They were beaten. They were thrown in prison and all the rest in Philippi. Uh, they were just basically run out of town in Thessalonica. So you have a situation which wherever Paul shows up, there's a riot. There's always a conflict. And as I said before, a couple of weeks ago, it's like the British bishop that says, you know, wherever Paul went, there was a riot. Wherever I go, they serve tea. But it is different because in some respects, he finds himself um, being a target of abuse and attacks. So in this case, this is why he sends Timothy rather than to go there himself. And then we see this very interesting statement here in verse 5. I was afraid that the tempter... Uh, That is, Satan had tempted them to give up on the faith. We'll come back to this idea of temptation because I want to broaden it to just this, but maybe give you some practical ideas on some of the principles having to do with temptation uh, from one passage and some of the stages of temptation from another. But again, just as he was seeing that Satan was hindering him from coming to Thessalonica, he also now maybe deduced that it's also possible that the same Satan that was keeping him from getting back to the city also might be tempting those inside the city. And so that is the argument that he makes there. Then he makes a statement that I've always puzzled about. And so today and in in this week in the commentaries, I figured it out because he uses the phrase laboring in vain, running in vain. And you see this in a number of places. I give you the verses uh, in Galatians. You see him talking about laboring in vain in uh, Philippians. He talks about laboring in vain. And what that doesn't mean is that he's regretting his attempt to try to convert the uh, Thessalonians. Or that uh, he actually completely was convinced that they had left the faith. 
But this phrase, and I did not know this until I saw some of the commentaries, actually comes from the book of Isaiah. So I gave you the verse there, Isaiah 49, 4, in which Isaiah, being this prophet speaking to an unbelieving Jewish world, talks about laboring in vain or running in vain. He says, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. So again, he recognizes that there are times, as we all know, when you work really hard and you have nothing to show for it. You know, mothers know this when you have little kids and I've labored in vain all day to get this house to look nice and look what it looks like at the end of the day. You know, so there's a sense in laboring in vain is not necessarily saying you're always a failure, but it also brings us back to perfect connection to what we'll be talking about as well. The idea that because we live in a culture that's fallen and we have a culture that groans. Pastor Graham gave us an idea that sometimes we're used to groaning when we get out of a chair. But here he's talking about this groaning. There is a sense in which sometimes we do our best job and still we have the sense that maybe we haven't done enough or that we at the end have very little to show for it. And that phrase, laboring in vain, running in vain, shows up in many of the letters by the Apostle Paul. But I did not realize he was really borrowing that from Isaiah in Isaiah 49. So just something that I learned. But ultimately, you might say, OK, why is he so worried? I mean, is Paul just a chronic worrier or what is the issue in God there? And it has to do with the fact that they were undergoing persecution. Just think about this. You spent three weeks ministering to individuals. You've seen conversions. You are establishing the fledgling church. And then you're run out of town and you recognize that the individual that ran you out of town are still in control in the city. And you're trying to hope that a church even thrives in the midst of this. And so he really begins to wonder about that. And, of course, he reminds them, as we had seen before, that persecution really is part of the Christian life. And I thought I would tie that into the message today, Romans 8. We spent a long time in Romans 8, haven't we, under Pastor Graham? Because as he wrote in Romans, we share in the sufferings of Jesus. And the sufferings of this life are what? Nothing in compared to what? The glory of the next. And so Pastor Graham shares about that. He says that in Romans 8, 7, and 8, and 17 and 18, but he also says that later on in 2 Corinthians 4. So you see a couple of places where he talks about whatever the suffering is today, it will be insignificant compared to the glory of the future. And so he's reminding them of the glorious hope in the midst of the suffering or persecution they were facing right then. So that gives us a little bit of an idea of those first five verses. Let's continue on, starting in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. 
And so now we see this emphasis here of the great news that comes to Paul, but even the good news that would come to pastors, that your flock is standing firm. We've all had examples that I've heard missionaries say, you know, I planted this church and then we couldn't come back to that church and we wonder what would happen. There was a time under Mao's cultural revolution that all the missionaries of China were pushed out and everybody wondered what would be happening in China when we had no communication with that. And as China opened up a little bit, we saw that in the midst of that persecution, uh, God was still working in the hearts of those individuals. And so though they remain close in heart, they're still very far apart. And so there was a sense in which now he receives that report kind of hard for us to imagine now because we all have cell phones and we all have internet and those kinds of things. But imagine you're wondering what has happened and now they have this great comfort in the affliction when Timothy comes back and gives this report that um, in sense he also promises that they would then receive what was lacking in their faith when Paul came to see them in the future. And so I think it's kind of interesting to put down the issues of the past and present have been kind of in the beginning of 3.9. Now in 3.10, he points ultimately to the future. And that future is kind of a turning point, a lot of people say, in this letter. It shows the primary purpose of that letter, and that is it's an interim communication from Paul to the church in Thessalonica until his prayer is answered and he can be with them once again. And when they're able to come, he'd fill in maybe some of the gaps in their faith, answer some of their questions. You can imagine the questions they've had. Just think after you've been a Christian. Let's say you became a Christian that first week and you're a three-week-old Christian. Can you think of all the questions you have? Matter of fact, we still have a lot of questions here. Matter of fact, just during the, uh, the break here, I've got another Ask Kirby question again, you know. And so we still have questions when, as mature Christians, you can imagine all the questions and also the desire for them to have this learned teacher, Paul, come in and answer their questions. But nevertheless, he says, you know, hold it until I'm there, but we will continue to help you grow in your faith. And so he's wondering how they haven't been enduring this. But again, the news of that um, really is very significant as they were longing to see. And as we've seen other missionaries sometimes get a chance to return back to their mission field and see this. And so it says, again, he reminds us, for now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So again, the encouragement of planting a church or in your case, the encouragement of leading someone to the Lord and then losing contact with them or contact with that church and finding out that they are standing uh, faithful in that. And again, their conversion wasn't a momentary response, but a true living faith. And as I've said before, sometimes the best way to determine whether or not the faith is genuine is give it time. Over these last couple of decades, I've heard various people claim to be born-again Christians, and I've seen some individuals that very definitely illustrated and demonstrated that they were Christians, and I've had others say they were, but there's no fruit that you see. And I think time is one great teacher as to whether or not somebody indeed has accepted the Lord. And we see this as well. Also, their whole lives and purpose and desire about that of wanting to spread the gospel illustrates that. Again, I find somebody who's become a Christian and is really growing in their faith. They also want to share with others. So, you know, if you see somebody that you're saying, 
Well, I'm really not sure where they are spiritually. You know, I used to call them Lady Clairol Christians. You know, only God knows for sure, you know. Um, there's a sense in which if they seem to be growing in their faith and they want to go and share their faith, that's, I think, a great indication of that as well. And so, again, uh, there was nothing for which Paul could thank them, God even more for the fact that they were growing in their faith. And then we get this last section before we get into this issue of temptation, because now we finally get to the prayer. And as I'll point out in just a minute, this is a very different kind of literary style than you see in the ancient Near East. But first of all, let's look at this. Verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and with all our saints. And here is just a good, if you will, model for prayer, because, again, he's talked about the fact that, first of all, they prayed for them day and night that they would be united with the Thessalonians. The Greek here, probably the best translation I've found would be exceedingly abundantly. And again, I won't turn this into a Greek class, but the uh, a Greek word actually is the same one used for other passages like in Ephesians about abundance. And so uh, there's almost a, a superlative that he is using here. And I thought I would address that for just a minute. There are times when um, the Apostle Paul uses some superlatives. Uh, do we use superlatives today in the 21st century? Yeah, I'm amazed how many young people say that's just awesome. Well, it's good. I don't know if it's awesome. You know, so sometimes we tend to use that or perfect. We just heard Pastor Graham talk about that's just perfect. Well, maybe not perfect. OK, so we recognize that we live in a world where sometimes people use superlatives. And that is certainly the Apostle Paul. I thought I'd address that because in Romans five, he talks about a super abundant grace. Now, that may actually be true. He talks about a superabundant joy in Second Corinthians. I think of some other passages, you know, they longed with great desire. He talks about that they toiled and labored night and day. I'm sure they probably got a little bit of rest. They thank God constantly. I'm sure there's some times they weren't thanking God, you know, so we recognize that. Or even that they were torn away, endeavored the more eagerly. We recognize sometimes these are superlatives to emphasize the intensity of their desire, their intensity of their prayer. But we also recognize that if we want to be a true literalist, you know, where they always pray in every moment of the day, Probably not. There were probably other aspects of that. But it's all illustrative of the fact that the Apostle Paul, as he writes these letters, uses those superlatives so he gets to their heart how much he is concerned about them and how much he desires that they grow in the Christian faith. But interestingly enough, this whole section really ends with prayer. But if you look at the ancient letters, and I found this in one of the commentaries as well, that it usually, if you had a letter in the ancient world, you usually had a greeting, a thanksgiving, and then a prayer. But if you think about the order that we've gone through so far, you have several narrative sections because it starts out with a thanksgiving and then a narrative and then a thanksgiving and then a narrative and then a thanksgiving, and then finally the prayer. And so part of it was because he had not had communication with them, he spends a fair amount of time before he even gets to the prayer. 
uh, to actually explain the circumstances, why they were so concerned, why he actually sent Timothy, why he was sending that letter, and eventually gets to that very significant prayer. But I thought it was interesting that both at the beginning and the end of the prayer, notice how he ties together God the Father and our Lord Jesus. Both the Father and Son direct our way. We see that in verse 11. Make us increase in love, verse 12. Also, make us holy, verse 13. And ultimately, judge on the last day, verse 13. So it's interesting that even in the prayer, you have really good systematic theology. And sometimes I've uh, heard people as they pray, they're praying, if, if you will, good theology as well as just, of course, requests. And so, again, here it reminds us of this final judgment. But there are two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, which is like a graduation ceremony. That's the one you want to be at. And then the judgment seat of God, great white throne judgment. That's the one you don't want to be in. And so, again, he reminds us of even that idea of judgment. But let's, if we can, just talk about how, in some ways, even as he's given us the prayer, he gives us a pattern for prayer. Because notice what he and his co-workers were praying. Verse 11, praying that we might once again come together. Then in verse 12, pray that their love would abound for each other and for all. And then in verse 13, pray that God would make them holy and blameless. So again, you can see kind of the order to his prayer and such a great model for prayer. Uh, something that uh, maybe even this week I'll be talking about with Ann Graham Watts will be on with her daughter, by the way, will be on the program with us. And uh, that's going to be an interesting conversation about some of these aspects of prayer. Well, let's move on and finish off the last part here, because you can take this last prayer and divide it a different way. And that is, first of all, he prayed that the Lord would increase their love for one another. In other words, in the Christian community. After all, if they're facing persecution, where are you going to get camaraderie? Where are you going to get mutual encouragement, exhortation, and accountability? That's going to be within that very small, fledgling body of believers. And so Paul has written in other passages that without love, it's just empty ritual. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a wedding in here, and I believe that the person doing the wedding is going to be quoting from 1 Corinthians 13. So there's a good passage there. So first of all, he talks about this idea of increasing love for one another and binding together, but then also love for the world. Because one thing to love your fellow believers, a little tougher to love some of those Gentiles there in Thessalonica that are making your life miserable, but that is indeed the case. So first of all, pray that they would increase in love. The second point, though, also prayed for God to establish the Thessalonians' heart as blameless so that in the midst of this, they would live lives that were blameless so that the watching world there in Thessalonica would say, what is it about these individuals? You know, we've been persecuting them, but there is something very different about them. They're living lives of integrity. And so as a result, they might be more attractive to those around them. Because we know the heart is not only the seat of understanding, but it's also the place where there are hidden motives and even today, we had a quote from Jeremiah. We can quote another part about the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can understand it? So, again, first of all, praying for love, 
for the body and for the other uh, people in the community, but number two, that they would live blameless lives. And so that works our way through the uh, third chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Let's, if we can, maybe just for the few minutes that we have remaining, talk about temptations. And this has been helpful for me. You know, as I began to understand, where do temptations come from? Satan in the world, you know, the flesh, the devil in the world, of course. But also, what are some of the principles about it and in stages so I can maybe short circuit that? So it's been helpful for me, so I share it with you as well. But let me start out with a couple of things. First of all, I love Oscar Wilde. I can resist anything except temptation. Okay, so we recognize that uh, things are tempting. Uh, temptation, by the way, is not a sin, but really, I think, a call to spiritual warfare. I have seen some Christians say temptation is sin. Think about that for a minute. Was Jesus tempted as we were? Yes. Book of Hebrews. Did Jesus sin? No. Okay. So you kind of say, okay, you've got to make a distinction between temptation and sin. And we are to resist temptation, not give into it. But in order to be successful, I think we really need to understand some principles. So, again, don't tell Pastor Graham here that I've been teaching temptation. But I am teaching about how to deal with temptation for a few minutes. I'm going to take two key verses. You can look them up, but I'll put them on the screen. 1 Corinthians 10, for those of you that uh, were navigators, and I was for a year, that's one of the first verses you memorize. You might remember that. And then James chapter 1. So we're going to look at the two passages and then look at seven principles, if you want to take some notes, or also seven stages. Seven principles can be very easily discerned from 1 Corinthians 10, um, Pastor Graham today was quoting from New American Standard. Most of the time we've been you in ESV. I thought that was kind of interesting. I think this is New American Standard, so I'll, I'll try to get into the uh, realm here as well. But anyway, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation overtaking you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. You know, when you memorize it at New American Standard, and then you go to ESV, after a while you can't even remember the verses and the words because they get kind of all messed up. But anyway, this is your classic statement about temptation. If you got some notes, you might number one to seven. I'm going to real quickly give you the seven principles. If you say, I don't want to get writer's cramp, but I'd like to look at those again, it's on the website, PrestonWoodExamine.org. So let's look at those principles relatively quickly. The first one is, don't think you cannot fall. Take heed. Why does they say take heed? Because if you think you're immune to temptation, you're probably in dangerous territory. I've had some individuals say, you know, I'm not really tempted by that. And I'm thinking, hey, you're in dangerous territory. You have to live in the world to say, I live in a world of temptation because why? As Pastor Graham said, we live in a fallen world, a world that can easily tempt you. The Christian church is full of believers that thought it could never happen to me, right? And sadly, uh, right now, one of my links that I get on a regular basis is for somebody that actually does a great deal of investigation in some of the scandals of the church. It's almost a full-time ministry now for this guy to look at these various scandals. A lot of them are financial, some of them are sexual, some of them are uh, where individuals have become overbearing and they end up being uh, various kinds of uh, churches which are abusive churches and things like that. And I'm here to tell you, if you know anything about the Christian world, you recognize that there are a lot of people who say, oh, it couldn't happen to me, and it did. So the first thing is principle number one, take heed. 
Principle number two, temptations will overtake you. We have kind of this mindset that we'll see a temptation. It's kind of like, eh, I can take it or leave it. You know, maybe like a bowl of broccoli there. It's like, eh, yeah, I could eat it, but I don't have to eat it. No, temptation is more like some of the nice food we got out there a minute ago that went out so fast that we're going to have to bring more food next week. Did you? We ran out of all our goodies there. Ooh, it's kind of hard to walk past that one, you know. The, or maybe uh, as you're really hungry um, and my wife always said, I'm starving. I don't think you're starving, but, you know, the food is just, you know, and that's what temptation is like. Temptation will overtake you. We live in a world, and I think one of the mistakes of Christians is not to say, well, this temptation, I can easily resist it. No, there are some temptations that will really pull on you based upon maybe your genetics, based on your family experience, based upon previous sin that will overtake you. And again, the second principle is that temptations aren't just neutral. Temptations will overtake you. The third principle we see here is your temptations are not unique. How many times have I heard somebody say, well, if you lived in my world, you certainly wouldn't uh, be so uh, cavalier about temptation. First of all, I usually don't say that, but they will sometimes say, look, I, you know, I am dealing with things that nobody else has ever dealt with. Scripture says no temptations are what? Common to man. And so don't think that you're unique in your unique set of circumstances. Number four, now we're getting to some hope. God is faithful. Paul's reminding us here as he's writing to the church in Corinth, which was a debauched culture. So you think about temptation, what it's like you're walking by trample prostitutes, you're walking by pagan, uh, you're walking by all sorts of things that are tempting. He's reminding them that even in Corinth, God will not abandon you. He won't let the temptations of the world destroy you. But at the same time, even though we can trust that God is faithful, There's another part of that, our responsibility, right? And that is, I put down here as well, we must do our part in protecting us from temptation. Uh, Proverbs talk about the idea of what? Guard your heart. Now, if that was true in the Old Testament and the Proverbs, right? How much truer is it in the 21st century where we assaulted every single day by visual stimulus? Cell phones, computers, television, billboards, just think about what we are dealing with. So if it was true uh, three, almost 3,000 years ago, it's even more true today. So I think there's going to be a need for us to guard our hearts if we're going to actually have victory over temptation. A couple more real quickly. God only permits what you can withstand. I thought it's interesting. He says, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able Now, a lot of people say, well, I was tempted far beyond my ability. But again, the idea is God may provide some barriers, some bridges, uh, some boundaries that will protect you, especially which it gets to the sixth principle that God provides what? A way of escape. It may seem like this temptation is going to overtake me and I can't do anything of it. I need to start looking for the exit that God is providing as a way of escape. Often the way out is to what? To get out. Matter of fact, earlier in the passage, Paul is already talking about the church in Corinth to what? Flee from idolatry. In an idolatrous culture that Corinth was, certainly the best solution is to flee from it in the first place. 
You know, don't say, well, I'm going to get on the Internet and, you know, maybe I'll check out a few things that are a little bit questionable. No, don't go there in the first place, right? And so that is the idea of flee from idolatry. There, walking down the street in Corinth was enough to confront idolatry. Now it's just a mouse click away, isn't it? And so that's something to pay attention to. And then finally, God will help you bear it. So those are some really positive principles. He first of all warns us, don't think that you aren't vulnerable to temptation, but at the same time, God is going to protect you as well. Which brings us to the second verse, then we'll wind it down. And that is James, as he is writing in this opening chapter, also concerned about the believers he's writing to, reminds us of the stages of temptation. And if you're going to be an effective Christian, see if you can, if you will, interrupt those stages before it brings to the final conclusion. Because James puts it this way, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Very sobering, but again, these are the seven stages, if you will, of temptation. The first one I called the look. He says, you know, well, it often starts with the look. James says we are carried away or drawn away. You know, um, David, walking around at night, certainly did not know he was going to see Bathsheba. But the look very quickly became a gaze and then became a leer. And so you can't protect yourself from all the things that are going to assault your eye gate and your gate. We live in a world that is definitely fallen. But the first thing is, gets my attention. I'm going this way and all of a sudden I'm looking over here. And so the first one is the look. But again, the next one is the lust. Because he says, then we're drawn away by his own lust. And it seems like when he says your own lust, it's almost like we have different thresholds for temptation. I've said before that if we ever wanted to uh, do something, we never would here in the exam class, do the uh, progressive temptation game. You know, you've been to a progressive dinner. You know, you could do a progressive temptation game. It's only theoretical because we're never going to do it. But you can imagine I could take you into one room and it's got all sorts of alcoholic drinks. And, you know, a full bar and everything. And some of you would go, whatever, doesn't have any temptation to me at all. Some of you that have been struggling with alcohol or maybe grew up in a household where your parents were alcoholic, that's going to pull on your heart in a very significant way. Parker and I don't drink, so we go, whatever. You know, you go into another one and maybe it's all sorts of gambling paraphernalia. And you go, well, I'm really not a gambler. Don't even think about that. But maybe you had a family where gambling destroyed your family. Or, you know, you could have uh, visual images. You can think of all sorts of things that in those different rooms as you worked your way through, some of those would pull on your collar and others wouldn't have an impact. And this is why I think it's really important for you to be a student of yourself. What are my vulnerable temptations? And if you don't know what they are, let me guarantee you, Satan does know what they are. And if you want to be successful, figure out what are my weak points? What are the things that are going to draw me there? Uh, I could take you to various parts of this community and you could walk by some parts of those uh, establishments and others would be going, you know, because just of the uh, possible way in which, again, you're tempted by what? your own lust. And so I think a wise and discerning Christian understands how they might be vulnerable in those particular areas. Well, we talked about the look, 
the lust, now the lure. James says that they are enticed. Some people have said that the best way to translate that Greek word is to put bait on a hook. And so, again, Satan's going to bait that hook. My joke is, is that Satan's not a fly fisherman. You know, if you fly fish, you know, um, as soon as the uh, trout catches that fly, you've got to pull it. Because, and we figured that out when we were out there in Oklahoma, didn't we? You know, you've got to pull it really quickly because it recognizes that it is fake. But Satan puts that nice, juicy worm on and says, oh, this is exactly what you want. And there's a sense in which he'll bait the hook and draw you in. The look, the lust, the lure. Now, the last couple, the conception. James talks about the fact that when desire has conceived, it's kind of like a, it's like conception and then the birth. So now it's in the mind, but it's moving from the mind to the actions. And that's, I think, one of the issues. And that birth process now brings us closer to sin. Matter of fact, at that point, it might even be sin. But leading to the rest, the birth now is not the end of the cycle. It's actually the beginning of the cycle. Uh, One of the things I did a week ago with Michael Perrin when we were on radio is we were talking about all the issues of addiction. They're going to try to talk more and more about just the way in which we can help people understand this issue of addiction because the birth now gives rise to the growth. Sin doesn't stop there. Actually, sin sometimes makes it easier to sin again. You know, we hear in the book of Hebrews, it talks about this idea of a besetting sin. You know, once you, maybe the first time you did a sin, it's like, oof, you know, but the next time it's a lot easier to do that sin. The next time it's even easier. There's some uh, counselors in Fort Worth that say, you know, first time it's like going to sin. It's like going down a country road and, and then sometimes you return, but eventually you get to your destination. Next time you've been amazed at how straight the road is. And pretty soon it's not just a two lane, it's a four lane, it's a six lane freeway. And as in a sense, what happens is the more you sin, we know from brain studies, it reinforces that behavior. And so a wise and discerning individual would recognize the birth, the growth, and finally, what does he talk about? The death. Sin brings forth death. Now, it could be actual death. It could be drug overdoses. Just look at all the people that are dying of methamphetamine, fentanyl abuse, and those kinds of things. In the past, could have been AIDS. It certainly could be spiritual death. It could be emotional death. But in any case, this is the result of temptation and giving away to sin. I know that was pretty quickly, but uh, I put this uh, chart. It's always a good opportunity to put a chart up there just to help you understand how the stage can actually lead to these stages of temptation. And I think it's just a good illustration that as believers, if we're going to uh, avoid temptation, not let Satan win over those temptations that he brings in our life, look at those stages, interrupt them before it leads to death. And that is the warning that obviously we see today. Pretty sobering. But again, I've never heard anybody teach that. So it was helpful for me. So I thought I would teach it here. Um, and now I'll turn it back over to Parker.